Well, good morning, everybody. So good to see all of you today, and it's always great when we uh, see all this talking time going on. I've had a bunch of you asked this morning, hey, did you get your son moved into college, which we did. Anybody moving kids to college uh, this week or in the weeks to come? Some of you around the room, you know the drill. Some of you are uh, good at it. You've done it a couple of times now. It's a first for us. We moved our son Joel to Taylor yesterday. Somebody was asking me, how, how are you doing, Dad? How are you holding up? And I said, well, if it's any indication, I was sitting in the front room the other morning reading my Bible because I'm spiritual like that, right? And uh, I was looking out the window and our four-year-old neighbor boy ran down to the end of his driveway to jump up and down and watch as the garbage truck was driving by, and I lost it. I lost it for about 15 minutes. It's just a weird season of life. So let's move on and not talk about that. Uh, construction, though. Let's talk about construction for a moment. I don't need to tell you that there is a lot of construction going on around Noblesville right now. You've seen it. And from housing developments to new roads and, of course, roundabouts, because there's always room for one more roundabout uh, in Hamilton County. But there's a new restaurant going up uh, over on the west side off of 32 off of Connor near uh, Riverview Hospital. You've seen it. You know it is the old Long John Silvers, and uh, my hunch is that it's a Wendy's. I, I haven't seen a sign up or anything like that. Some of you are nodding your head because you know for sure uh, that it's a Wendy's, but uh, some of you, if you're like me, you look at it and you think about the design of the building, the colors of the building, and well, it just kind of automatically clicks for you. It's like, yeah, that, that's got to be a Wendy's, and it's funny Here's the point. It's funny how things like colors and designs of a building can tip us off uh, to what it really is, but, but that's the marvel, if you would, of good branding. Some of you do that kind of work. You understand the importance of branding and marketing. You know that companies like Wendy's and others spend a lot of time and money uh, designing, doing the work, you know, putting together design features, color schemes, and catchy slogans, like in hopes of creating a consistent experience experience that customers will identify with, that is going to draw them in. I don't get the sense that Jesus put any time, much time at all, thinking about branding or a marketing plan for his ministry. But as we're going to see today, uh, he has in mind something very specific, that he wants his followers, that he wants his church, all right, the Big C Church, to be known for in this world, something that will help others identify them for who they really are and who they belong to. And when you hear it, we're going to talk about this today. You won't be surprised at what it is, but for some reason, it's easy for us to forget or to overlook it altogether. So if you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to take it and turn to John chapter 13 uh, in the New Testament. It's the second half of, of your Bible, um, the fourth book, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John was one of the disciples of Jesus. Uh, we've been studying the gospel of John all year long. We call it Grow, and our goal in this series uh, is to study the life of Jesus together so that we can grow in our faith as individuals individuals, but we also want to grow together as a church family in our faith and in our love for the Lord and how we model him uh, to the rest of the world. So let's pray together as you're finding John 13, and then we'll carry on. Father, thanks for this time today, for this time of worship, for things like conversation with others, and just knowing that you are here, that you are here with us, Lord. Uh, we, are, we are grateful for that, and for your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And Father, I know that we've got a bunch of different people in the room today, some that have been around this for a long time, others that are brand 
brand new to this. We're all in different places on our faith journey. What I'm praying and asking is that you would use today to help each of us take a step uh, as you just continue to move in our lives and give us faith to see you for who you really are, the Savior that you have for us, the Savior of Jesus Christ, and the change that he brings about in our lives and certainly in this world. And so speak to us, move in us, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, last week we studied the first part of John chapter 13, where right away, John, the writer here, this disciple and friend of Jesus, provides an important time stamp to let us know specifically what was going on in and around the city of Jerusalem. Let's look at it together, John chapter 13, verse 1. John begins by saying this, it was just before the Passover festival. Now, Passover is one of the sacred festivals uh, on the Jewish calendar. Every year in the spring, back in the days of Jesus, 10 of thousands of people would travel to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. And it's an event uh, that Jews have been celebrating, would have been celebrating annually for centuries. Uh, and it served as a reminder of the day that God freed his people from slavery in Egypt. And one of the highlights of the Passover celebration is the, the, the meal. And when we think about it as Christians, when we think about our Bibles, when we think about this final week in Jesus' life, we think about Passover and we think about the, the last supper that Jesus enjoyed with his disciples, the Jews know the meal by another name, and it's the word Seder, all right, S-E-D-E-R. The word Seder just means order. The Seder uh, was a special meal, a very symbolic meal that the Jews still today celebrate in observance of Passover. And within the, the meal, the story of the Exodus was always told in special foods like unleavened bread and bitter herbs were eaten as a reminder of all that God had accomplished for the Israelites on their very first Passover centuries before. Kind of think uh, Thanksgiving for Americans, right? That comes around every year at the same time. We celebrate every year. We eat traditional foods like turkey and cranberry sauce and pumpkin pie to commemorate the Thanksgiving meal. Jews celebrate Passover with the Seder dinner. And we know from the text that Jesus and his 12 disciples uh, were gathered gathered in an upper room, likely on the Thursday of the week, somewhere in Jerusalem, to share this Seder meal together. And thanks to Leonardo da Vinci, when we think of the meal, we picture it looking something like this, and we imagine Jesus and his disciples crowding in for the group photo uh, in this particular moment. But as it turns out, uh, they likely ate not at a table like this, but in an arrangement made popular by the Romans, a table referred to as the triclinium. All right, if you're taking notes and you want to write down the word triclinium, the word triclinium and that prefix tri means three-sided table. All right, so I want you to imagine a, a U-shaped table, uh, which doesn't sound too unusual to you and me, especially if you've ever been to places like Benihana, right? I mean, or, or some other hibachi where maybe you sit at a U-sided table because who doesn't want an onion volcano, right, on, on their birthday. But again, if you've been to Benihana or something like it, you've sat around a triclinium triclinium sorta. They don't call it a triclinium. It's not really a triclinium, but I think you get the point. Uh, in Jesus' day, the Seder meal like this was often shared around this U-shaped table, this three-sided table, and also it was very low to the ground. And you can Google pictures of this yourself, but what they would do, and this is going to make sense in a moment as we look at the text together, is that they would, and I'll just demonstrate it for you, 
would lie down on the ground on their left side. They would use their left elbow to prop themselves up, which means they would have their right hand free. But as you sat along one portion of the table, then my right hand would be free where I could reach over to the table and grab the food that I need. All right? Thank you very much. So there's the uh, triclinium, triclinium arrangement. Now, why is that important? Well, hang with me, and it'll make a little more sense in a few minutes as we'll see that the seating arrangement brings some light to an already really important story. Verse 2, John writes, The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Now, Steve hit on this briefly last week, but in the midst of this important meal, take note, John lets us know that there is a powerful spiritual battle that was unfolding in the heavenly realms, and no one knew it except for likely Jesus. But the fact that Satan was at work in the background of this uh, story didn't keep Jesus from carrying out the agenda that his heavenly Father had given him, because we saw, as we saw last week, what did Jesus do? He got up from the table... And he got down on his knees and he washed the feet of every disciple in the room. And he did this as a way of demonstrating how much he loved them. Pick it up in verse 18, skipping over as we want to kind of focus on the second half today. Jesus said to them, I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen but this, Jesus said, is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. And what Jesus is going to do is reach back to Psalm chapter 41, verse 9, if you want to write that down and check that out for yourself later. And he quoted for them, He who shared my bread has turned against me. And then he continues, I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. In other words, Jesus says, pay close attention to the events, to everything that's happening here at this table this evening, basically because prophecy is playing out before your eyes, and what is happening now will begin to make sense later. And then in verse 21, John writes, after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit. Now that word troubled here is the same word from John chapter 12 verse 27 that we saw a couple of weeks ago when Jesus said my soul is troubled. It's the same Greek word that demonstrates the emotions that Jesus expressed at Lazarus' tomb. What is Jesus troubled about? All of it. All of it from the cross that's coming the disciples and what will become of them, his betrayer who is present there with them. Like, keep all of this in mind. Jesus knows this is the Last Supper. The disciples don't. Jesus is the only one aware of that. And so let's just take a moment to appreciate the humanity that, Jesus, that John exposes of Jesus here and that Jesus celebrates this sacred meal with the people he loves the most. He washes their feet to demonstrate how much he loves them, but John recalls how Jesus was troubled about something. Verse 21, Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Now, so many of us have heard this story before. It's easy for us to read it with very a little emotion, but look at how the disciples respond to it in verse 22. John writes, his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. Now, we read this, right? We read this and we think, oh, it's Judas, duh. Like, everybody knows that it's Judas. We all know that he's the betrayer, but let's just take note that none of them could imagine any one of them 
betraying their rabbi, their teacher, including Jesus. Like this isn't registering with them. And then verse 23, we read, One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. All right, think about the table. Think about the formation of the room. Think about me laying on the floor here on stage. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Now let's just stop there for a second and connect the dots. For starters, who is the disciple that Jesus loved? Somebody say John, right? We know it's John. We see this referenced over and over again. Most scholars agree that it was the disciple John, the one writing this gospel. Now, there are a couple of things that are strange about this to us. First of all, why isn't John writing from a first-person perspective? Why isn't he just using words like I and me? The short answer is that 2,000 years ago, there were different writing styles, just like there are today. And so in a unique, intentional way, John writes here, but he avoids speaking of himself in the first person. But there's something else too, because when we read it, we think to ourselves, that seems a little arrogant, right? To call yourself, to refer to yourself as the one that Jesus loved. But what it doesn't say is this, and and to be clear, I, I don't think John is saying Jesus loves me the most. He's not saying that. But rather, I just think it's his way of letting his readers know how much he really thought about his friend Jesus and a glimpse of what Jesus had accomplished in his life. Because deep down, John knew that Jesus loved him in spite of all of his flaws and all of his failures. Remember, this is the same John who once asked Jesus to call down fire from heaven and consume a group of people that opposed them. It's the same John who Jesus called one of the sons of thunder. How do you get a nickname like that? A little bit of a temper, all right? A little bit slightly judgmental, maybe quick to jump to conclusions, but then Jesus got a hold of his life. And as only Jesus is able to do, his love, Jesus' love, left a lasting effect on John. Think about this. In John's gospel alone, he uses the word love something like 56 times. Add to that another 58 times in the other four books that he has written in the New Testament. It's fair to say that the love of Jesus got a hold of John and radically transformed his life. And do you know what? What Jesus did for John, he wants to do in my life. He wants to do in your life. He wants to do for each of us. He wants his love to so radically change the way we see ourselves, the way we see other people, the way we see our purpose and our mission in life, everything that we do. And he wants to do it in such a way that any of us might be able to say, my name is Paul and I am the one that Jesus loves. He wants to do that for each of us. Look at verse 24 again. Simon Peter motioned to him, to John, and said to him, ask him, hey, who do you think he's talking about? Like, who's going to betray him? And that's where our understanding of the seating arrangement, really the reclining of the disciples around the table becomes pretty interesting. Because one of the interesting details about the triclinium meal was the seating arrangement. It was the seat you sat in and where you were on this U-shaped table. Now, traditionally, people would sit on three different sides or on three different triads of this table. But that's not all. Again, there was something specific about each seat around the U-shaped table. Within the cultural context, most scholars conclude that Jesus would likely have been sitting in this second seat on the left, which was the host seat. If you were the host of the meal, 
you would sit in that second seat in this triclinium arrangement. And that makes sense because he's the rabbi. He's the teacher. He would have been the host for this meal. At the same time, most scholars conclude that John would likely have been reclining to the right of Jesus in that first chair. The seat to the right of the host was reserved for a trusted friend. It was reserved for a special guest. Verse 23 again says, the one whom Jesus loved was reclining next to him. And because they were reclining, John would have naturally been able to recline into Jesus who was very next to him. But this is where it gets really, really interesting. Apparently, scholars conclude that Judas was potentially sitting to the left of Jesus. Now, we'll talk about this more in just a moment when we get to verse 26, but it's important for you to know that Judas and Jesus were sitting side by side for a lot of reasons, but here's one that might surprise you. Traditionally, this seat in a triclinium meal was reserved for the guest of honor. This is the guest of honor. And so put yourself in Jesus' position. If you knew you were sharing your final meal with the people that you love the most and you knew that one of them in the room was going to betray you, where would you seat that person? in another county, right? I mean, they, they wouldn't be invited to the meal and you'd make sure everyone knows about it. Not Jesus, though. That's not how he th- handles things. Think about it. He's already washed the feet of Judas as an expression of his love towards him, but that's not all. Apparently, he sat Judas to the seat next to him in the place of highest honor. And maybe this was Jesus' way of letting Judas know that he loved him no matter what, even in spite of his feelings, his actions against him. Or maybe this was Jesus' way of giving Judas one last chance to change course. Who knows? But there's even one more piece of information that helps bring all of these details together. Look back at verse 24. John writes, Simon Peter motioned to this disciple, and this disciple again is John, and said to him, ask him which one he means. If Go back to the seating arrangement if we could. If, if John's here, all right, many scholars think with the details that they know and some other information that maybe I'm not sharing that, that potentially Peter is sitting on the other side of the hibachi in this first seat on the right, again, directly across from John and across from Jesus. But the irony of this seat is that is the seat of the servant. And you know what the servant is supposed to do in the triclinium arrangement? Do things like wash feet. Wash feet of the others that would have been present in the room. What a teaching moment for Jesus. And for Peter too, as Peter will eventually become the leader of the early church after Jesus' resurrection. Not yet though. He's not ready. Peter's not ready. He's still watching. He's still learning. And as someone said, Jesus was teaching him from now, for now how to lead from the servant's seat. Now, that's a lot of details, a lot of information, but it kind of help, gives us a picture of some things that are happening within the context of the text. Again, these disciples, they're, they're processing so much of this. They've just learned that one of them would betray Jesus, and they're all wondering who would do it. Again, look at the response, verse 24. Simon Peter motioned to his disciples and asked, said, well, ask him which one he means. 
Leaning back against Jesus, that would be John. He asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one I will give this piece of bread to after I dip it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Remember, this is the Seder meal, which means there's a lot of specific things being served and eaten as a reminder of what took place on that first Passover. For instance, they always ate lamb at a Seder meal as a reminder that on the first Passover, a lamb was, was sacrificed, slaughtered, its blood was taken, all right? There's, there's power in the blood. The blood was taken and painted across the doorframe of the home back in Egypt. This was done so that the angel of death would pass over these homes and the lives of people would be spared. For us as Christians, it's no coincidence that the lamb today represents the death of Jesus Christ, the lamb of God who died in our place. But, but they also ate at this, this Seder meal matzah bread, which is unleavened bread and was meant to remind the Israelites that their ancestors had, ancestors had to leave Egypt in such a hurry that there was no time for the bread to rise. And they also ate bitter herbs known as maror which is typically raw horseradish. And uh, if you've had horseradish before, like you know the strength and the power of putting horseradish into your mouth. It reminds me, of course, of cocktail sauce from St. Elmo's, okay? And uh, if you've been there before, all right, you, you know what I'm talking about. And whenever time I talk about St. Elmo's, it always reminds me of a story. Jenny and I were there with some friends a number of years ago. She was eight months pregnant at the time. We were sitting at this table with our friends when all of a sudden the server dropped some food in between us, including a bowl of ketchup. And I was alarmed when I looked down and saw that I had a spot of ketchup on my pants. And I just, I just happened to say, oh man, he got a little bit of ketchup on me. And Jenny, who I told you was eight months pregnant at the time, said, ketchup on your pants. And I looked over and she had ketchup all the way down her arm and all the way down the left side of her dress. And I mentioned she was eight months pregnant, right? And if you've been there, you know, evidently there's some emotion involved, you know, at that point or stage of, uh, of pregnancy. All right. The good thing is that they took care of all of it and it was still a really, really nice evening, but cocktail sauce, really, that was the point of the story. Like if, if you've had the cocktail sauce at St. Elmo's, like, you know, you better be prepared. Like if you've never had it before, before you put that stuff in your mouth, like the horseradish is so overpowering. The maror or the horseradish served as a reminder, get this, of the bitterness of sin and rebellion and betrayal against God, the thing that landed them in slavery in Egypt in the first place. Marty Solomon does this podcast called the Bema Podcast. Maybe you've seen it. He's got a lot of fun things in there. He suggests that what if when Jesus dipped the bread into the dish and handed it to Judas, he was handing him the bitter herbs, the things like the horseradish, and not as a way of getting back at him. But Judas knew what it meant. And we don't know for sure, but if that's the case, Judas would have tasted it and been reminded of the effects of personal sin and rebellion against God and perhaps even been reminded of his betrayal that was already in process. Look at verse 27. John writes, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. This is the only time in the Gospel of John that Satan is mentioned by name. And while it leaves us asking lots of questions, one thing is certain, like Judas' betrayal was in full motion and Satan was using Judas as a tool to help carry out a plan that would result in Jesus' death. 
verse 28. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give to something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. What do we do with a story like this? What are some things that we can take away? Well, it's easy for us to read the details of this story and to just assume that Judas was a bad guy with a really greedy heart, and so he was getting what was due of him. But the fact that John tells us that Satan entered into Judas is, is concerning. It's concerning to say the least, but more importantly, it's all a sobering, sobering reminder that there is a powerful spiritual battle at play in this world and that Satan is a shrewd enemy who is always looking for ways to deceive any one of us. Now, was Judas susceptible to Satan? Yes. Was he susceptible to Satan because he um, lacked good teaching, uh, that he didn't have any good examples or models in his life? I don't think so. Think about it. Judas sat under the feet of Jesus for three, three and a half years and witnessed Jesus' example and living the things out that Jesus was teaching. And so Judah's problem wasn't that he didn't have uh, access to good resources. His problem, well, I think you could say his problem was that his heart wasn't fully surrendered to Jesus. And in the end, the enemy pounced on the opportunity to take advantage of that for his own purposes. But if you keep reading the chapter, it's not just Judas. He wasn't the only one who struggled with faithfulness to Jesus. In verse 37, Peter boldly proclaimed that he would lay down his life for Jesus, but then Jesus responded by predicting that Peter wouldn't only uh, uh, disown Jesus one time, but it was going to happen three times. But it's not just Judas and Peter either, because Matthew records that eventually all of the disciples, in one way or another, are going to desert Jesus when he was arrested, which shows that they all struggled to remain faithful to him when times get tough. And I tell you all that to say that none of us is off limits. No one is off limits. And just as, as Jesus is in this world, there is an evil one at work in this world too. And like Jesus, he is also searching for hearts and for minds to help carry out his evil, sinister ways. And so maybe the best lesson we can draw from all of this is that any one of us can go through all of the motions of life. We can do the right things. We can call ourselves good people. We can do things. We can go to church, all right? But if our hearts, if your heart isn't fully surrendered, daily fully surrendered to Jesus Christ, we can fall away too. Because whether I believe it or not, I'm like Judas. I've been misled by my own dark heart. Chances are you the same, not only Judas, but we're like Peter. We betray Jesus with our, our selfish ways. We deny him with our words and with our actions. But here's the thing. That's why Jesus is so beautiful. And that's why he's so wonderful. And that's why we need Jesus and we need his forgiveness. That's why we need his deep, uh, ongoing, transforming work in our lives. It's why we need a deep, abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. It's no coincidence that Jesus addresses this now in chapter 13. But in chapters 14 and 15, he's going to talk about the importance of a fully surrendered life and what it means to lean and abide on Jesus every single day and also the gift and the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us. But as we wrap up, there's one more thing that Jesus says here that we need to see. And it has to do with how he wants his followers, how he wants his church 
to be identified in this world. Let's pick it up in verse 33. He says, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I am going, you can't come. So far during this meal, what's Jesus done? He's washed their feet. He's told them that one of them would betray him. He's getting ready to predict Peter's denial, and now he refers to them as his dear children, which is another expression of his deep love for them. And I can only imagine how confused, how confusing it must have been for them, even with all of this information. But pay close attention to what he says next because in verse 34, he tells them, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In the midst of this incredible, tremendous spiritual attack and in light of all of the emotion and information swirling around the room that evening, the message that Jesus wants his disciples, you and me to hear is this, love one another. And for the record, this wasn't just some passing comment or even a strong suggestion. It was a direct command, and it's a direct command that Jesus would repeat a few more times that evening, like in places like John 15, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks, John 15, 12, and 17, where he says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. All right, love one another. Take a moment to think about the significance of what John is sharing with us. Again, he began the chapter by telling us that Jesus viewed his disciples as more than friends and co-workers, but he viewed them as his children, commanding them to love one another, but not just to love one another, but to love each other in the same way he has loved them. And so in essence, Jesus wanted them to know that even though things are going to get frightening, even though things are going to get confusing, even though things are going to get complicated. Not that we can't relate to that. The one thing that he wanted to urge them, command them to continue doing, the most important thing for the rest of the world to see, was to love one another. Jesus basically says, love is the play. I command you to love one another no matter what happens next. No matter what you go through, no matter how difficult it may become, love is the play. Love one another. And you know what? The same thing that was true for his followers then, of course, is true for us today. That the greatest testimony of our faith in our Savior is the degree to which we love one another. What's that look like? Well, quickly, the best scriptural example I can think of is found in the book of Acts. It's a history book that talks about how the early church was formed, how it functioned and grew, and how the Lord was all over it. In Acts chapter 1, we're reminded that Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven just as he predicted. But in Acts chapter 2, we learn that on the day of the Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus' followers, all right, his church in power. And it was at that point that his Holy Spirit began living inside of his followers, and the results were pretty incredible. Let's just look at this briefly before we close. Acts 
chapter 2, verse 42. Here's the results. It says, they devoted themselves, that is all of the Christians, to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the, the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And one of the things that stands out to me about this passage is that even though we don't read the word love anywhere in them, it's all over it in some really practical ways. They devoted themselves to the teachings of Jesus. They shared communion together and prayed together. They had everything in common and lived generously towards one another. They met in large social gatherings uh, and in small group type environments and they did it with glad and sincere hearts. It sounds like a genuine love for Jesus on display for the world to see. And here's the best part the author of Acts tells us that that kind of love that was being lived out by these Christians in the early church, well, look what resulted from it. In Acts chapter 2, verse 47, it says, And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. For the last two weeks, we've been looking at John 13. We've seen Jesus model this love by washing his disciples' feet, and now he's commanding them to do the same, and And not just them, but any of us that would come after, you know, in the generations to follow, that as followers of Jesus Christ, we would model the same kind of love that Jesus lived out for us. And so before we close, and maybe this is your homework for today or this week, like how is he calling you to fulfill his command to love others the way that he has loved you? Is it to forgive someone? To forgive someone because, well, Jesus forgave you? Is it sharing his grace with someone else and extending it to others because that grace extended to you? Is it living generously to help someone else in need around you? Is it making yourself available at a place like Genesis so that you can know others and they can know you? Is it using your gifts, your talents, and your abilities to serve others because he served you and he served me. I think it's any number of those things. And just like in Acts 2.47, the Lord wants to add to our number daily those that are being saved. But just like the church in Acts, that's only going to happen when we move past just hearing about the love of Jesus and extending and modeling that love of Jesus to everyone we come in contact with. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the wonderful, awesome example you have given us in Jesus Christ, our Savior, that as he loved, we are called to love. As you have loved, Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit in us, like we can extend that same kind of love to the people that you have called us to. People in this room right now, people in our small group, people in, within our student ministry and Certainly people where we live, our neighbors, in our schools, people that are serving in our community right now as public officials. Father, we know that you have called us to love, and so will you help us to discern that work of what it means to obediently follow Jesus 
and to still love in a way that sometimes might look even controversial. God, we are trusting you. We are putting our faith and our hope in you. We thank you that you've given us a savior in Jesus Christ who gave his life so that we could have life. Teach us and show us how to live each day. We trust you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to celebrate communion together because that's what Jesus and his disciples were preparing to do. And if you didn't get a chance to grab the elements, they're in the back of the room. We've got some tables back there. Please feel free to get up from your seat right now. This is a time for those of us that would say, I have put my faith and my trust in Christ. And, you know, when we think about that Thursday night meal, we think about how this expression of communion of where it came to be, that Jesus, what did he do? He, he took the bread, he broke it, and he handed it out to his disciples, and he said, this is my body. It will be torn apart for you. They'd put that together eventually. But he says, when you eat it, I want you to remember, remember me and what I've done for you. If you've got that bread with you today, let's take it right now and remember that his body, that he gave up his body for us, say by his wounds we are healed there's life life in the bread and life through his body and then he took wine we use juice but he said this is my blood there's something special about the blood For the Jews, they remembered the blood on the doorposts of the home, the freedom that comes through the blood. As followers of Jesus, we know that it is by his blood that we are saved and redeemed. It's what Jesus accomplished on our behalf, his love. Take and drink and remember. Father, thank you that your blood was shed to satisfy the payment of sin. But thank you, Lord, that you raised Jesus from the dead and that we have life and hope through him. Thank you for your great love for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together, sing and celebrate as we close.